Hey, hi, hello, y'all. This is RB, and welcome back for season two, episode five of Take the Last Bite, a show where we place Midwest nice under a microscope and zoom in on the abnormalities, curvatures, and complexities of the ways queer and trans people coexist in the Midwest. I'm going to keep today's intro pretty swift and sweet because I'm currently recovering from a back injury because gravity and Minnesota snowy ground conspired against me and I'm trying to listen to my body, but I want to lay some context for the conversation you're about to hear today between myself, kind of, and two of my um, cherished friends in the work. Before this recorded conversation, Azreen and Oprah had never met each other. We had all chatted a bit via Facebook Messenger to talk about the logistics of the recording, but otherwise these two had never been in long-form conversation together. But I had a hunch that knowing them as I do separately, bringing them together was going to garner a really nourishing and rewarding conversation. And oh my goodness, was I correct. There's a ton of really incredible takeaways from this conversation. We dig into imposter syndrome and the feeling of, well, who am I to think I can run for political office or be someone that folks can rally around? We talk about a lot of the limitations and restrictions of marginalized folks, especially queer and trans folks of color, to even run for office because of a lot of um, lesser known associated costs for running. And we talk about some of the stickiness when it comes to electoral politics and how the pace of change in politics versus organizing and direct action work sometimes clashes, but that there's still a lot of value in utilizing this existing structure and system to enact sustainable change. But what's still really resonating for me and something that I think speaks really broadly to one of our underlying motivations behind this podcast is how the conversation started. And I opened this up asking both Asreen and Oprah what their relationship is with the Midwest. And from there, our conversation really kind of lays out what does it mean when you establish an affinity for your physical geographical location? It's more than just dirt and earth. It's about the people. It's about the community. It's about resources. And in many ways, it seems for these two, it's about identifying gaps in the existing spaces they're in that need addressed and feeling called and motivated to address the restrictions and limitations in those spaces. In conceptualizing our show, Take the Last Bite, we very much wanted and continue to want to highlight and talk about what does it mean to exist in a Midwest queer space, place, and time. And it was very enlightening and humbling to hear from these two folks who endured quite a lot of lessons um, and obstacles and 
uh, endured so much personally and politically because those are intricately intertwined, um, how their affinity for where they live, two completely different municipalities in two completely different states, um, neither of them from the locations in which they ran their campaigns originally, kind of speaking to what does it mean to have a connection? What does it mean to come from um, different places and compare and contrast what's going on at home versus what you now call home? What does it mean to be kind of a transplant into spaces and want to be part of the conversation and want to be part of making change in this place that's newer to you? What does it mean to integrate into these spaces that aren't necessarily affirming for the identities that you hold and how that becomes this kind of beacon, this kind of uh, motivator for saying, you know, I'm here and I plan to be here and I want other people who are like me and who think like me to feel like they can be here as well and disrupting some of the status quo and normalcy that exists in these predominantly white cishet normative spaces. This is not a conversation promoting or favoring or grandstanding to say that every queer and trans person, every marginalized person needs to run for political office. That's not what we're talking about today. This is a conversation about how we can utilize and leverage different tools, some of which currently exist and some of which we're looking to create, to dig as deep as we possibly can and yank at the roots of all of these systemic and structural realities that inhibit our lived experiences. This is a conversation with two folks who are not traditional cookie cutter career politicians, but who understand that by placing themselves in spaces where those career politicians exist, they are usurping and interrupting the status quo and business as usual. You can learn more about Asreen and Oprah's backgrounds as educators, students, colleagues, community members, friends um, in the show notes. I'm incredibly grateful to both of them for finding time to share space with me and to be in conversation with each other. Um, it's really interesting to get a handful of facilitators together to have just kind of a casual conversation for a podcast because it just seems like everyone's really fluidly passing the baton and moving the conversation forward. So this just felt so seamless and easy. Um, and I really enjoyed every moment I was able to have with these two um, post-campaign. So I hope that you're just um, as nourished and encouraged by all of the wisdom and vulnerability and honesty that these two had to share about all of their experiences and insight and wisdom. So with that, I ask you to sit back, relax, and take in all the goodness of this episode of Take the Last Bite. Y'all, we cannot do this. We cannot be these stereotypical Midwesterners. Please eat the rest of this food. We just have these conversations every day with people. Like, this is exhausting. I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> Why can't we be in space with hundreds of other queer and trans folks and having these necessary conversations? I don't know who you are, but <laughs> we're going to talk by the potatoes for five minutes. Because aesthetic is the only thing keeping my dysphoria at bay. Yeah, I'm broke all the time, but I look amazing. Definitely going to talk about Midwest nice. And if that's, if that's, that's um, as real as it wants to think it is. Midwest nice is white aggression. That's what it is.
All right, fam, I'm super excited about this conversation. I feel like this is two of my like separate worlds coming into conversation together. Um, I'm really excited to be with both of you. So let's just start off with both of you like sharing who you are and then including in that intro, like what is your relationship to the Midwest? Um, who am I? So I just got asked to send in this bio. So <laughs> I earlier today, I was like, you know, grooming, grooming myself as humans do, you know, in the bathroom. And I'm like typing this little bio up. So this is perfect. So I'm just going to read the bio that I came a little prepared. And that's only because this other person has been um, trying to con- get in contact with me about sending in this bio. So my name is Azreen Owl. I use she, they pronouns. I am a first generation Muslim immigrant, Bengali, Asian American, queer woman of color, dedicated to social justice, community health and healing. I am an advocate, an activist, an artist, and an adventurer. I am determined to heal the generational trauma, the systematic trauma, and the interpersonal trauma that I carry while also empowering the intersection of my identity. I love challenging myself and connecting with the people and environment around me. Wherever I go, I will bring my authentic self, my heart, and my community with me. So, I don't know. I don't know if that did a good job. Yes, I love that. I too have a bio. <clears throat> no, I'm kidding. I don't. No. Um, no. <laughs> gosh, literally uh, made that up. <laughs> that's uh, no. I'm happy to be in your presence. I am. I'm, I'm Oprah Janelle. I am. Uh, I use she/her hers pronouns. I currently live in Michigan. I serve LGBTQIA2S plus students uh, at Michigan State. I live in Lansing, Michigan, and I am black. I am fat, I am queer, I am goofy. Yeah, I, I love people. I love talking to people and trying to figure out how we can make the world better. I love talking about it and doing about it as well. And happy to be here. Um, one thing that you didn't say was your relationship to the Midwest. So you like, love it out here, been here for 50 years, like what's going on? And then I'll say my thing for the Midwest. <laughs> I I caught like as I said the bio. I was like, wait, I don't think this covers anything. <laughs> it's like I don't know why I said it then. So my family, we're first. We're I I, I can't tell if it's first gen because you know like sometimes I consider self my first gen, but I'm also that gen that immigrated. So like I am an immigrant, right? I I have my green card. I had my first passport. We went through, you know, I was neutralized um, through my father when he got his citizenship. So my story to the Midwest is um, essentially 1990. My father won the DV2 lottery, you know, so very like a rare chance. He came over to New York very specifically, got into, you know, found community there, um, um, got into the Indian restaurant business there, um, went back, married my mom. I was born. And then my mom and I later um, joined my father in around 1999, 1999. And by that time, my father had moved from New York to um, Minneapolis, Minnesota. So when I, we came, my mom and I joined my father here. Uh, it was directly Minnesota. Like Minnesota was the first place, essentially, um, in the U.S. that I lived in. And I sometimes still ask my dad, it's like, why, why, like, why not New York? Why Minnesota? And I think the job, like the job opportunity that he had had brought him to Minnesota. And then because there wasn't as big of a diverse community here, um, the people that were here, he 
create like made really strong connections with because there's a limited amount so you got to build coalition where where you got where you find it right? right so surprisingly he like he thought of going back to new york where there's a bigger bengali community but he ended up staying here because of those more intimate connections like there's only a few of them at that time now there's like many of us <laughs> walking around so through that process like that immigration and that movement and that journey um i've always been in minnesota and in the midwest and frankly as much grief as i give my father for moving from new york i i think you know i i've built roots here and the relationships are a lot stronger here and you know i struggled a lot here too um struggled with my identity and you know how like I'm a global South body living in the global North, very much so in the Midwest where there isn't that many individuals around me that look like me. So I guess through that, um, I grew up in the Midwest. I struggled in the Midwest and I found myself in the Midwest, um, like found my voice and how to you know activate that voice. I guess that's my relationship with the Midwest. I'm very much so attached, even though I have dreams of like, say, moving to one of the coasts and living by the ocean. I found the biggest body of water in the Midwest and decided to move there, you know, so, and probably will be here for a long time. So that's my connection to the Midwest. I love that. Um, And that's also interesting that you're like, sometimes you dream about going and living on like the coast. I'm from the coast. Um, So (laughs) I grew up in Los Angeles, California, um, all over Southern California. And I could go to the beach when I felt like it. Like, you know, but we didn't go often because we lived there. So it was like, what's the point of driving like 45 minutes to go to the beach or however, you know, if it's it's always there. Um, So that's really interesting. And then I moved away, have no intention of going back Um, because I, you know, I went to school in Arizona. I did my undergrad or I did my grad school work at the University of Kansas. Um, So that was my first little Midwest moment. Um, and before that I worked at the University of California, Los Angeles. So I was working, uh, doing diversity equity stuff, working with transfer students specifically in the residence halls, you know, having these big conversations about justice and equity and liberation, like what are we doing, you know? And, um, one of my, my supervisor at the time was like, you need to go. And I was like, what are you, what are you talking about? I'm, we're doing great work here. I got to stay here. Um, and she was like, no, like, you got to go and, and see how other people are talking about this. They have the same positions as you or that they're also working in housing or they're also working in diversity, equity, inclusion, whatever. You need to go and like and just learn, learn what's happening out there, because um, I was very sheltered and, and protected by folks who thought like me, who I could have tough conversations with and they wouldn't cry. And then I went to, so I went to University of Kansas and I had an education, mm. like folks who say they love inclusion, they love diversity, mm. they're all about it. And then once they get done checking that box, like that they had the training or that they watched the video or whatever, they're right back to racism, right back to mm. transphobia, right back to all the things. And because it's like breathing. It's like, if you're not actively fighting against it, then it's just gonna happen. And so I learned, I was like, oh, oh, so like saying it doesn't mean that you're doing it. And and I I was, you know, raised up in the work like of, well, if I'm, if I'm talking about it, I'm actually doing it too. I'm just, I, I was doing it before I knew how to talk about it. I had to find the words like, oh, this is intersectionality. But it's like, I was just doing it, you know? And so, um, 
so the Midwest was where, where I really got that like, oh, okay. So if I don't say the thing in the meeting, then like nobody's going to say the thing in the meeting because there's no one out here who was really thinking the way I'm thinking. Um, and then you, I kind of found my people, like uh, I was in the grad school program. So found folks who were going through the same stuff, thinking the same things, came from other places. And so those are folks that I still talk to today, like that I know if I call, they'll answer that kind of thing because we supported each other through that. Left the Midwest for a minute went to Massachusetts, worked out there in housing, and then came on back. And this is the first position I've had uh, at a university where I didn't live on campus. So I'm actually like rooted in the community. And so that feels completely different than other places I've been because it was just, you get stuck on the campus because that's where you live and work. Um, but I've really, I've really loved that and come to love Michigan and love Lansing and, and the people who who have the thoughts and the dreams and they're actually working towards those thoughts and dreams in the community. It's a lot harder. Um, it's, I feel like it's a lot harder in the Midwest for black indigenous folks of color to, to navigate the realm because of Minnesota nice or the passive aggressiveness, mm-hmm. but then also a lot of the times allies or people, you know, who are like, we're with you. Um, like you say, they say the words, but there's no follow-up action. Right. right. Um, because they don't do that internalized work of, okay, you're outwardly um, explicitly saying this, but have you evaluated the internal self? Have you evaluated your Mm -hmm. internal biases? Have you checked your privileges? And when that doesn't happen, I think um, it's a lot harder. The environment becomes a lot harder. Absolutely. But um, I think that's actually one of the reasons why I ended up staying in Duluth. My first week in Duluth um, is waiting for a bus and uh, I got called a terrorist, right? I was, I had my hijab on and, and in that moment, I had a friend too, who also was, you know, was a hijabi and was with me and, you know, she's, she's black and I'm brown and we're just waiting. And these people go by and say like, you know, we're going to hell and things like that. Wow. Uh, but in that moment, some of the, some of the folks, the POC in our group, some of them were like, we got to go back to Minneapolis. We got to, you know, we, mm-hmm. we have to go back um, to uh, to Minneapolis, where there's more diversity, more folks of color, more, you know, that more of that safeguard, right, where you have mm-hmm. that support system. But that got me thinking, I guess, if I leave, who's here for the generations to come, right? We're, we're not, you know, we're not taking our presence in this space, then we're not, you know, we're not putting our presence in the space to for folks who will come who look like me, or mm-hmm. who are queer, or who are, you know, POC, um, Immigrants. So I guess that was one of the reasons where I found a place in the Midwest, in Duluth particular, where I felt connected to the nature and the environment. And I very intentionally wanted to create community too, even knowing that this community might push back on, on ideas of, of my identities or the intersect, inter- intersections of my identities. But, but I oftentimes think, right? Like, cause in that framework, it's like, we will gravitate where there is more diversity, there is more, you know, um, in those like, um, usually the bigger cities. But then I think of those rural areas in the Midwest where there isn't. And, you know, um, thinking about how when I went through the campaign, and there were a lot of ugly comments that came my way, Mm -hmm. recognizing, like, it's probably 
coming from a place where they have never met someone that's Muslim or brown or an immigrant. So how how do I carry myself forward through that experience? So I think it's a good place to maybe like dial back just a little bit, right, to make sure that we're <laughs> clarifying early, right, what, what campaign you're talking about, um, because that, right, is why <laughs> um, you're both oh, yeah. is like, well, and I, I start with that question about your relationship to the region, because I feel like that that relationship and that backstory is so relevant to like your affinity for where you're currently situated and ultimately the decision that you both made last year um, to run for political office in your respective municipalities and as a conversation that, you know, I felt really motivated to have, especially, right, as someone personally who really doesn't have a lot of faith in electoral politics, um, but in our current climate and current context, right, there's a lot of power and there's a lot of investment in electoral politics, so it's pretty impossible to ignore. So I, I definitely want to hear from both of you about the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? Like what, what was your campaign? First of all, like what was your, what was the um, role that you were running for? Um, and what were some of the experiences that you had running for local office? Yeah. So um, I, in Lansing, Michigan, uh, the city is broken up into wards. There are four wards. Um, I live in the largest ward, um, which is Ward 2. And I, uh, I was motivated by, I've never thought that we have a scarcity of resources. Um, I've never thought like, there just isn't enough to go around. There's more than enough yeah. to go around to serve people. Our priorities are out of whack. Mm. Um, and that's what I ran on. <laughs> like y'all are being, uh, y'all as in like voters, uh, general folks who are dialed in medium late, like all the way versus like not at all and all that are being like lied to and you're being told that there's just not enough. So when you say, hey, our streets aren't getting fixed or these lights have been out or look at all these abandoned buildings, like why do we keep having abandoned, abandoned buildings and the city doesn't do something, put something in it, make it really cheap so that a new business can get in there. Why is this happening? And then they say, oh, well, do you want that or do you want to be safe at night? And it's like, wait, what? So now you're making me choose like safety, which if we put safety here and then put an asterisk on it, they really just mean police, mm -hmm. um, which I was very open about my desire to get rid of the police mm -hmm. in my campaign, brought me a lot of ire, like folks just super angry. And the folks who were open to a conversation I was able to pull them along mm -hmm. because it's easy to create a monster, especially out of a black woman. It's easy to, to say she wants you to be unsafe and wants the criminals. She's trying to help the criminals. But when I talk to individual older white folks who started with this, I love the police and I can't believe you would say such a thing. When I started talking to them about where crime actually comes from, mm -hmm. And, and how police don't actually prevent the crime from happening. So yes, I hear you telling me that your house was broken into multiple times and how that was devastating to you and, and made you feel really insecure about your home and your safety. I hear you. And the police came, they wrote up a report. You didn't get any of your stuff back. <laughs> and it happened again, is what I also heard in that. So what if our city refocused got those people what they need because that person broke into your house to steal stuff so they could sell it because they wanted it because whatever. But what if everybody has what they need to be successful from right where they are so that they don't do those things? Like we get into our schools early and we promote mental health 
and like pers like just personal growth, like all the things we, uh, if you wanna be a scientist, if you wanna be a singer, if you wanna be whatever, we give you the tools to do that. Like I wanted students, I, I talked about um, getting in our schools and making sure that kids can dream but then they also can have the tools to get to those dreams. And, and we can do that if we take money from this thing that we know, uh, the, the institution of policing, that we know that we're just waiting for them to mess up. We're like, we're gonna take resources from the community. We're gonna make it hard for you to get your education. We're gonna, we're gonna drive around your neighborhood, little black and brown children. And we're gonna show you that we're watching you. And then in your schools, we're gonna have paid police officers walk around and watch you as well. So now you're used to being surveilled. So the piece of your brain that you get to develop that says, maybe I don't want to like push this trash can over, or maybe I don't want to whatever, you don't have to flex that piece of your brain because someone is always in the shadows watching you and saying, get off that. Like, so, and you don't get to do that in community. We're not talking about accountability and bystander stuff so that your friends can say, you don't want to do that. Come on, let's go over here and like hang out, like whatever, so that we can start taking care of each other. So, and those are the things I talked about on the campaign trail, as they say. I too was a person who was like not really interested in politics. Um, I, I paid attention loosely, and I had friends who would talk about different things happening, and I would be like, "Oh, okay, that's cool," and read an article or two. But when people are like, "Oh, I don't, I don't do politics," politics does you, <laughs> like. Politics is dictating your life for sure. No matter how much I wanted to not pay attention to it, it was impacting the streets I drive on. It was impacting the taxes I paid, um, impacting my neighbors um, and friends. And so um, it was really important for me to, to be like, okay, I have this job um, at Michigan State that you know has given me a sense of security financially that I've never had in my life. I'm in the community. I can do something, like I can try. And if not me, then who? So like, might as well just like put myself out there and do it. And so that, that's kind of what pushed me was like, I can keep talking about it or I can try to be about it too. And I, and I can try this one avenue. Yeah, that's a, um, that's a powerful statement of like, if not me, then who, you know? Like taking that personal accountability and putting yourself out there, knowing that it's gonna be hard. <laughs> and it sucks that the, the systems that we're actively fighting fighting against, those aren't systems that we created. Those are systems that folks with wealth, privilege, and power created and now maintain. But those are the systems we're actively fighting against, knowing mm -hmm. that the the responsibility that we're we're taking on. So no, I feel that. I feel that statement like, if not me, then who? What about you? I was having a really hard time finding my voice and like figuring out who I am. Like, you know, um growing up in a very suburban white name like you know community um down in the cities and the suburbs there was a lot of privilege that wasn't talked about you know um and as one of the only during my time at least one of the only you know global south bodies in that school you know it, it was hard to find my identity and who i was and the intersection of those identities um i remember in that school district there was someone who was saying uh, highly problematic things and you know it was in a classroom and i call that student out. I was like, hey, that's racist. And the teacher immediately turned around. And this was like when I was in sixth grade and was like, you can't say that to anyone. You can't call anyone racist. We don't use that language here. You know, so, you know, where was the where was the, you know, the centering the trauma and the centering the margins, you know, in that. So going from that kind of environment where, you know, I that was in sixth grade and, you know, in third grade, I remember in that 
in, in that same school district, I remember they were showing 9-11 videos and, you know, I, I saw those side eyes and those glances and, you know, um, the teacher saying, you know, attributing like religion and identity and like an entire culture of individuals to like, oh, they're violent, right? Not, you know, and just like not seeing the full nuance and the, you know, what goes into it and. Right. How Christianity has its own set of extremists. <laughs> And like not talking about the power and privilege that came into play here and not talking about the historical mm-hmm. context, you know, not talking about generations and generations of knowledge that was created from these cultures and mm-hmm. these global South bodies, but very so focusing on political motivations and, you know, trauma essentially mm-hmm. that propelled actions of violence, right? That had been was condoned by all Muslims around the world. So it was interesting to be in that environment and hearing my classmates be like, oh, we should just bomb the whole goddamn. Wow. We're third graders probably re like, you know, saying things that they've heard in, in their, in their families and things like that. And, you know, I, I can't remember if it was second grade or third grade. I remember the teacher, like there was a worksheet of like, what do you want to be when you're older? I had wrote down, I want to be white. So at a young age, I had so much internalized oppression and bias that I started to hate myself. And it took years of self-love and still to come to a place where, you know, I, I love who I am in my identities and the intersection yeah. of all of that. Right. Even as that second, third grader, I knew where, who had the power and the autonomy. I might not have had the words to say, but I knew mm-hmm. it. So what I started recognizing, even though I don't like politics, I don't like like how it's how our system is run. I felt that I was constantly, politics has been constantly pushed into my face because of the rhetoric, the propaganda and how it's like played out in the active lives of like uh, folks living in the community. So with that and struggling to find my voice, I came to Duluth and then in Duluth, as I got more involved, like was discovering myself going like and discovering a lot of my traumas and my PTSD and really diving into it. That's when I started speaking up and finding my voice um, on campus. And then, you know, the thought of if not me, then who, right? This, this burden and responsibility to actively push back against the system is not is not a wish that I would want for any of my children, mm-hmm. any of my peers to recognize the level of trauma that even comes from being out there and actively pushing against a system that is constantly trying to push you down and like stif- like stomp on your light and your brilliance, you know? And I think that kind of relates back to like the migration and the movement that my ancestors went through, like through Asia, Northern Africa, you know, of, and like the, I think the leadership that my answers had taken up. And I guess I felt that sense of responsibility of like, I'm, I'm here to serve my people. I'm here to uplift and serve my people. And I was doing that through like nonprofit work, activism work, my art. But through that journey, I never envisioned myself getting involved in politics. I, you know, I was involved in politics in the sense that politics affects my life every single day. I follow global news pretty, you know, often like Mm -hmm. looking at um, but in those in those moments there last year, um, mentors of mine that I looked up to that have helped me through the, the this entire journey have appro- had approached me and was like, you should run for this seat. And, you know, all of a sudden those imposter syndromes and the internalized bias came out. It's like, yeah. ah, I don't think I'm qualified. I don't know yeah. if I have the qualifications. <laughs> I don't know if I would get the votes. I don't know if I can do this. Yeah. But then once people started, you know, challenging me in a sense where Think about what you have done already and what you can 
continue to achieve with like with the seat, with your voice in the seat. And then think about the individuals who currently hold the seat. And if your life experiences that you've gone through is something that they can bring to the table. And I was like, no, like my life experiences as an immigrant, as a Muslim, a queer, you know, brown person navigating this journey in this life. I, I don't know um, if, you know, if my I can see my voice or any sort of representation in, in local politics for me. Right. And then um, it, it already and I, doesn't exist like on a on a large scale. So yeah. it's like, how do you see yourself in something where you don't see yourself? <laughs> exactly. Right. So yeah. when I was like, OK, well, let me let me actively think, is this something I can do? Is this something that I can serve folks through this seat? You know, can I can I serve my community? Um, and then when my initial answer of no slowly turned into a maybe and then slowly turned to a yes. And the moment I was leaning towards, yes, I got in contact with city council members, current and past and allies, essentially, and had that discussion. It's like, what do you do? Like, what is your impact? What can I do? And through those conversations, I got really excited for the position and the challenge that it might propose. Through that journey, I ended up becoming a candidate, which was its own whirlwind and monster. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it being a candidate in a campaign is something that I, I, I think it, it's like indescribable. Like, I don't think if you haven't been a candidate, like it's so difficult to explain mm-hmm. what it is because all of a sudden you're this public person and you're putting your entire authentic self, if done authentically, mm-hmm. yourself out there for yeah. criticism and critique, which, you know, every elected official should and have too. But, do and at such a personal people. level too. Yeah. So essentially that's, you know, that, that was my journey and why I ended up then saying yes. And then running a campaign and really trying to build coalition, um, with my community and the different spheres of community that I was involved in. Yeah. We should, I mean, I don't think we've blatantly said it, but did you win your election? I did win. It was close, but I did win my election. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I did not win my election. So we have like, we can talk about this. (laughs) Right. But I I will say I gave the incumbent a run for his money um, because I was like, I'm not playing around. Um, And I think he he played around up until the last minute because, yeah, that's how that's how I see this uh, when I think back on it is like, he really thought he just had it in the bag and then started hitting doors and realizing that people were talking about me and not interested in him because we were hitting doors for like months. Um, and he only really started hitting closer to election time. So at the end of the day, um, he got like 2300 or something. Also, my ward was like the lowest, like we don't vote turnout. in my yeah. ward, lowest turnout. And I got like 1300, something like that. So mm-hmm. for a newcomer, just yeah, that's coming out of nowhere. Um, the folks on my team who are deep, deep in politics, who have pay attention to everything, they were like, this was great. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you didn't win, but you won. A newcomer coming out of nowhere, like, this doesn't even make any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was because we wanted it so bad. So congratulations um, to you. I, I want to acknowledge my privilege here, though. Um, I There was an individual, so there was two seats up for Duluth City Council for the at-large position. And because there was two seats up, um, one was an open seat. Um, and the other seat was the individual, to say uh, folks um, call her the incumbent, but technically she was appointed. She was never elected in until just, you know, she went through her, the most recent election. 
but you know, she was seen as the incumbent. So for one seat, she had a very, very strong hold. And essentially it was me and this other individual who was more uh, right-leaning. And of course I'm more left-leaning going (laughs) really neck to neck uh, for the second seat. So I want to recognize that privilege where there were two seats um, and I wasn't directly running against an incumbent for one of the Mm. seats. Because thinking about it, sometimes I wonder if there were two incumbents in that seat. I don't know. I I don't know what the results would have been. But because one individual who was previously in the seat decided not to run again. I love to hold multiple truths. (laughs) So sure, you maybe had some like, like the door wasn't all the way shut. You maybe it was cracked and you just like kicked it open. And also I'm sure you worked your butt off and and deserve it and are doing a great job. So hold multiple truths. You can have a little, a little help and also, um, work really hard and do great things that's awesome yeah I mean even feeling like you have to like disclaim some of that makes me think about something we talked a little bit before I hit the record button right because I was like wait wait we gotta we gotta talk about this because it's so good so good and also so shitty is that like all of these experiences that you both named about like even considering running who was in your ecosystem to kind of push you convince you volunteer you to run um who was you know participating with you, right? Seemingly folks who are already really invested in the game of electoral politics, folks who maybe have experience with campaigning or who've been part of local politics, you know, previously, right? Like inviting you in and encouraging you and guiding you along. All of that to say, right? Like the insurmountable barriers or like brick walls to bump up against through the entire process, win or lose, right? Like whatever, you know, we're naming as yeah. a win at, in this situation. And we we were talking about, right, just like all of the deterrents that marginalized folks have in participating in electoral politics. And from mm. what y'all have already shared, right, a lot of it is just, who the hell am I to like do this, right? Um, especially with another barrier being, these are predominantly white, you know, municipalities, the voter turnout, you know, across the nation is always going to be older white folks. Mm-hmm. We're definitely seeing young folks and marginalized folks participate more actively, but we're also more inclined to look for alternatives, right? Mutual aid projects, other types of systems that are just beyond mm-hmm. electoral politics. So like you really got to, you know, push and push against all of these things. So what we also talked about was just, there's not a lot of like incentive besides wanting to do good work because the pay right? Like the compensation for folks who are doing local politics is really like disproportionate, even compare, you know, comparing y'all's municipalities. It's not sustainable for folks who maybe are already experiencing, you know, generational wealth gaps or like Mm -hmm. poverty, right? Like it's just not feasible. You know, I was telling y'all before we hit record too, that like here in Duluth, we had someone who's a small business owner that wanted to participate and run for a um, be appointed in an open seat. But once they found out what the meeting schedule was, they're like, that doesn't work with my own schedule to run my business. So how am I supposed to participate in electoral politics and be, you know, a representative, you know, even be considered, right? So there's all of these like, layers and layers and layers of who can even participate, right? Oprah, you even said you were, you're in a position right now where monetarily you could sustain yourself to be able to even consider running for a position that's paid but a paltry amount, right? Like, yeah, 
So let's, not, can we tuck into that a little bit of just like all yeah. of these like layers and layers of reasons why like it's really hard for folks to even consider running through these positions, especially the two of you who are like, this wasn't a dream situation, right? There's plenty mm-hmm. of cis- white boys who go into student senate in their colleges and they're like, I'm going to be president. And they, they probably are because they have the need <laughs> to think about it that early. I know so many, right? But like yeah. y'all are not those people, which I really appreciate, by the way. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's a there's a lot of barriers. Uh, one of the things out here that struck me right away was when you when you go in and you say I'm running and you fill out the paperwork, you can either go and get like 250 signatures from your neighbors and community in the ward, or you can pay a hundred dollars, and that gets your name on the ballot. And it was COVID. On, on is COVID, was COVID at the time, like before, and that was before vaccines mm. were everywhere. Um, and before we understood, you know, you're more likely to get it if someone talks right directly in your face than if you touch a doorknob or a doorbell and that kind of thing. So I didn't feel comfortable going up to people's homes. We were quarantining, um, asking for uh, asking for signatures, you know, when we don't know what the, at the time we didn't know much about the virus. So I, um, so I opted to pay for the hundred dollars because I could, um, but there are people who could not, like that would be an instant barrier. Um, the second thing was when you go and apply, um, not apply, but you go and like sign up and everything on the website, on the city's website is your name, your full address. Cause you, you have to put down nice. an address mm-hmm. and um, a phone number, you can put a phone number down and an email address. So I created like my political email address. And before I filled out the paperwork, when I realized that that's what that was going to be, uh, there was only one other candidate who had a PO box uh, that's on the open to the world e- uh, website. And everyone else just had their home addresses, but they also were cisgender, straight, white folks. Like they, they had no... Uh, a conservative folks like the the incumbent family man you know he I got these kids and I got my wife and you know I work with my hands kind of dude so he he has no reason to be afraid right. like he's not saying anything controversial he's not pushing for change um, he's not trying to uplift marginalized communities who have been just shat on by this system that he benefits from and so I went out and got a PO box so I, I had to pay for that because it was like, I, I'm not comfortable being in my home talking about how we need to take money from police, get rid of them and like actually focus on the community. So I had to go get a PO box. So that was another barrier where I'm like, oh, this has to be a holdover from like everybody just being white, cisgender, straight, Christian, conservative, whatever. It doesn't matter if your address is out there. Nobody's coming to your house to, right. to burn it down while you sleep. Um, but those are things that I thought about. And, and also with, with how uh, people, white people, are finally talking about the police in some areas um, where they weren't before, they weren't considering, like they weren't listening to black and brown communities when we were saying we're not safe, they're killing us. Until, you know, last summer, I think um, I was also concerned about speaking my truth around police because I'm like, bad things do happen and y'all have created a system where we are reliant on you. And if something bad does happen to me or is happening in my community and I want help, there's no other people to call. 
So why aren't we talking about how to call people, like creating systems where we can call folks who don't have to show up with a gun to your community, but can still come and help you if you need something um, that, that is, you know, that is out there. And so that was another piece of my campaign, trying to really talk to folks about like, we can change the way we live. We don't have to be relying on these folks. Um, and then meeting with the interim police chief and him saying, well, you know, yeah, we don't have all of the positions filled and like people don't want to be police right now because of the way police are talked about in the media. And I'm like, no, it's because police kill people and then they don't go to jail or, or get any repercussions for it. That's why people don't want to be police. Like boil it down because you can't blame black and brown people and indigenous folks for everything. And, and then his push was, well, we need more money because more money will make people want to be police. More money will keep us safe and all that. And that was just the, the lies that were being bred at that time um, last year. And so lots of barriers. Um, and I also struggle with the imposter syndrome thinking like, who the hell do I think I am like doing this? Um, this is not for me. Um, I had other black folks tell me things like, you need to stop talking about getting rid of the police. You are not gonna win if you talk about this. And me pushing back saying, I have to sleep with myself at night. I have to look at myself in the mirror. I like to be able to meet my gaze when I look in the mirror. And I won't be able to do that if I start conceding things now. So I'm not going to do that. And then have those folks not want to be a part of my campaigning. Um, and that's okay, because we all get to make choices. Uh, just, just a lot of barriers around like safety and feeling like, what am I doing? What is happening here? And I am a very private person. So it also felt weird to, to have people look at me in the grocery store because I sent 3,000 mailers out the week before. So then now I'm in the grocery store and I'm like, why are you staring at me? Pick up your broccoli and leave, you know? Um, that's all. <laughs> I think it was something that I noticed from the campaign right off the bat. You know, prior to this year, I'm nonprofit work, 30K a year. The city council bumps me up to like, what, 42? Um, but 30K a year for, you know, my my tuition, my rent, groceries, carpet, you know, you know, <laughs> everything, right? And, you know, when you look at standard of living, like I'm privileged to make that amount. I'm privileged to have this roof over my head. Like I recognize that. But at the same time, you know, I'm struggling too. You know, I was struggling a lot with my health and medical bill and debt and all of this. Like, like I said last, when right before I decided to run, um, there was an incident that triggered my PTSD and it was, it was really traumatic. It was, um, uh, it was, I was getting flashbacks and it was very traumatizing, but I didn't have adequate healthcare at the moment that anything I seeked, I would have had to pay out of pocket. At the same time, I was having a lot of physical health difficulties that I couldn't pay for either. So combining all of that, when I was going to run for election, I, you know, I communicated with my campaign team. It's like, I don't know if I can put any money of my own personal wealth and money into this campaign, which you see a lot of the other candidates doing where they give a loan out to their campaign, which I can't do that. So I knew that I am going to have to fundraise. I'm going to have to fundraise a lot 
really much I'll lean on my community. And that's going to be challenging because asking for, you know, asking individuals who who I know that every single freaking dollar matters, you know, because I'm in that position, my family's been in that position where every single dollar matters um, in how you know, how it's impacting your life. So there's this immense amount of like, the conflict and tension as I was asking my community, please support me through this. Also recognizing that I need your support so I can, you know, amplify your voice on the city council too. So, you know, there was this balance that I was trying to work around, but through that, you know, money is what I was recognizing is what, you know, gets you in front of, you know, people like fundraising to get yard signs, fundraising to get radio mm-hmm. ads, to get billboards, to to get mailers. All of that is so directly related on money and personal contributions, you know, from your community members. So I have my own concerns and issues about that to like even begin with right off the bat and how different money and funding comes into a campaign and what that looks for, you know, that individual as an elected official and things like that. But one thing that made me realize at that moment is I had to go through a job transition where my job that I had at the time um, as a youth advocate, it was shift work, shift based work. Right. So I was working from 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. every single day, except for like whenever I get those my two two days off, like those that weekend off. And that that makes it really challenging. Right. Because when mm-hmm. you're a candidate and you need to be knocking doors, you need to make making calls, you need that afternoon time. So I had to shift and tra- like, you know, shift my entire career or like my work that I was doing, my job um, in order to make sure that, you know, I can sustain my campaign. So when I made that shift to more of a flexible position, still doing similar community work, youth based work um, and like program advocacy work. Um, I was able to, you know, I was still putting in like, say, after work, I was putting in two to four hours door knocking every single day or making calls or something, you know, and time, you know, that time that I spent Mm -hmm. in there, that's not time that I'm being compensated for at all. Right. Um, And then realizing even as an elected official, I'm still going to have to work my full time job two part-time emergency jobs Mm -hmm. to sustain myself. And, you know, and yes, the stipend helps. It helps significantly, right? But it's not something that I can like let go of my my three other positions to just do holistically. And I feel that, right? I, I think about that often. It's like I wish I could put everything into this elected mm-hmm. seat and position, you know, that, that I see like individuals who are retired. Um, who are doing or have that wealth and privilege or that power backing who are doing part-time jobs or, you know, have that generational wealth that they can bring in where they're not, you know, but individuals who are also working, you know, full-time jobs alongside city council, right? And that makes me realize the barriers that exist for the working class, the individuals at the margins, Black, Indigenous folks of color, queer folks from running in politics, right? Mm -hmm. Um, There's all these financial barriers, emotional barriers, systematic oppression and barriers that exist with that as well. Yeah, it seems like, right, like, some of the big points here then is the time consumption, right? How much of your time is dedicated Mm -hmm. and who, who has to spend one amount of time, right? Are you able to just Mm -hmm. pay the hundred dollars or do you have to go knock on, you know, a bunch of doors and canvas for Mm -hmm. days, weeks, months, whatever, Mm -hmm. to get your signatures? Um, How much family? No, you're just not allowed. So I was able to be like, oh, let me go out here and like do stuff. But I I couldn't (laughs) imagine doing this and raising children, a child, um, taking care of a partner, like, and, and being there for them during this, during that time, like, it was terrible. <laughs> like, there yeah. was nothing, there was no extra minutes. My entirety of last year 
two to four hours, sometimes six to eight hours every single day. When I feel, I mean, the system definitely seems not seems like with certainty, right? Like it's based off of a model that serves career politicians, right? Like folks who want to start in politics early at a local level and work their way up to some kind of like large scale, broad based, you know, political career, which is not, not going to serve marginalized people in any type of way, either as constituents or or as folks who are interested in running. And so what what I'm also wondering out of this, right, time consumption, money consumption, disparity in resources, who has access to doing these things, who has the time and space and resources to do this, who has the connections, right, who has the the wherewithal, who has the, like, all of these, like, things, (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. all these barriers you listed off, right, what does it feel like to, like, think about either as folks who've done the campaigning or as folks who may be eventually guiding or supporting other folks who do campaigning to do all of this labor, right? All of this work to enter into like a structure or a system that is historically, traditionally, and just blatantly slow in terms of making and contributing to change. Like, what what does that feel like? Maybe a way to break it down. Um, Oprah, I'm interested if how did you navigate endorsements? Because that sometimes like, you know, determined what kind of support you were getting, who were giving you your support and what kind of funding was coming into your campaign. So how did you navigate those endorsements? So uh, on one hand, they were navigated for me because there were places that would email certain candidates and not others because they already Mm -hmm. knew that the values weren't aligned. I had my talking points on my website so um, they, did a, they did a good job of being like, we're only gonna email the other person. Um, and then, so I didn't have to even deal with that. For the, for the folks offering endorsements that were just emailing everyone, um, I got to decide on if like values aligned. Um, I would look at their past um, endorsements and see like, like who, who, who do you care about and what were they saying at that time and, and that sort of thing. Um, so I, but I filled out things. I went to every uh, thing that I was invited to. Um, I, I honestly don't think that there was one that I just didn't go to. Um, but the Black Lives Matter Lansing had um, talking had a, a handful of talking engagements, and I went to all of those. Um, I was endorsed by the Democratic Socialists of America chapter in Lansing, um, and they were incredibly supportive and so helpful with the campaign would not have gotten as far as I did without uh, the support of that team and so I would say I just I took my time and I would read about like what they were into because I at the end of the day didn't want to be endorsed by someone who or a group that was terrible like because that's just that's not what I was doing to that end with the money stuff, I also got all of my money from like individual donors. I didn't get any money from even the endorsements I did get from like Black Lives Matter Lansing and all that did not come with my, with money. So every dollar I got a little, I think I got a little over $8,000 for my whole campaign. Yeah. Came from individual people who were like, you, I like what you're saying. Here's some money. Also, um, those are black and brown folks. And those are Mm -hmm. low-income folks like the people who really care and like loved my message and so I I was straddling a line of feeling like give me more money and also yeah I'm sorry that you're giving me money 
I'm glad you believe in me, but also I know that, uh, come on, like this sucks. Um, <laughs> I think every time when your, you know, your community donates and gives money, there's that extra responsibility, you know, recognizing mm-hmm. like that dollar matters, that dollar yeah. matters to them. And now that dollar is like so valuable in the campaign. How do I show up as my authentic self and continue to elevate that voice? So Absolutely. no, I, I did very similar things. Um, my campaign team really looked at what kind of ador- endorsements we were seeking um, and the, the the vision and the mission of of the group and how that aligned with who I am and my experiences and what my platform was based on those experiences. Yeah. So RB, can you say your question again? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you're, you're definitely hitting on it. And I appreciate it as trying to take my like big picture, right? But it was it was kind of talking about how especially for the two of y'all, y'all are not career politicians, right? Y'all are doing nonprofit work, you're doing education work, you're doing community work, right? Like all of these myriad things that are very parallel and aside from electoral politics and also, right, the power and the like investment in electoral politics, right, is hard to ignore. Like you said earlier, Mm -hmm. Oprah, right? Like you can ignore politics, but politics are doing you. So yes, either engage or don't. So I guess my question, you know, in a couple ways is how would you stay motivated around continuing to engage with local or municipal politics? how do you stay motivated when we know that this is a system and a structure specifically that works so slowly in many ways at making change, that there's a lot of bureaucracy, that there's a lot of politics within the politics, like we talked about, Mm -hmm. right? It's not a fast moving change machine. So how do you like, how do you balance the desire to be a part of a structure that has so much power to try to, to steer it towards making meaningful change and also the exasperation? with how slowly it often creates that change. If it could tra- creates it at all. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a meaty question. You're welcome. Because I think <laughs> I, um, being the kind of person I am, I was really like, I look like I'm one person, but I am multitudes. I am millions <laughs> and billions of people. I'm not alone. And if I learned anything from the election time, was like, I'm not the only one that is thinking the way I'm thinking. I'm not the only one who wants the things I want. We just need to find each other. And one of the tricks of like white supremacy, patriarchy, sexism, enter the ism. Like (laughs) one of the tricks is like, it makes you think, it gaslights you. I'm the only one who cares about this. Look at me be alone. And it's like, wait, what? Like, no, um, people came out of, came out of nowhere. Um, and we're like, oh, love what you're saying. How can I support you? I make cakes. Can I do a fundraiser, like oh, a raffle off a cake for you? Um, I had my, one of my close friends now, um, Sarah Jean sews on Instagram. Uh, always be plugging. No, she, um, <laughs> she sews. And, and does like stitching and stuff. So it's like, and she was like, I will stitch something and raffle it off and the money can go directly to your campaign. You know, she came out of nowhere because she saw what I was talking about and believed it. And that's the kind of stuff that kept me motivated and keeps me motivated because we're here. We're in a system that doesn't want us to be here. So we have to mm-hmm. find each other and be intentional and strategic, but we can make space for each other and we can support yes. each other. We can do that from right where we are. I think with a slow moving system of oppression, like city politics and like all the things, um, I just think about how I function and I'm, I'm, I'm good with a, the interim measure as we're on our way to the long-term measure. And so I, even before the, the voting and all the things, I had a Google doc going 
of like, this would be my strategic plan for my position and all How that higher stuff. out of you. I know. <laughs> so I love higher it. Um, but uh, the cute thing that I was doing was setting it up like phases, like Marvel Cinematic Universe. Look at you. So thank you. That was my That's little thing. So I, I had it set up as phases. Like we go in there, we humanize folks. I get to know where you're at on city council. Like, what are you thinking about? What are, what are your motivations? And then I can learn your language, you know? Um, so it would just be learning. And then it would move into like doing, like I called it know better, do better. You know, my Angelou, woo woo. Um, because once we know stuff, you can't unknow it. Yeah. Um, and so let's go, like, let's do something with our new knowledge. And so it would have been slow moving. And I also was prepared to stay in community with my constituents. So regular meetings and with just regular folks. And I think the, I didn't know who my uh, representative was until I ran against him. So it's like, how does that work? Like you're supposed to speak my interests in, right. in city council and I don't know who you are. And so, um, because you have determined who your people are, who will vote for you and, and you don't care about the rest of us. I was motivated that there were enough of the rest of us enough of the others <clears throat> to really push and to do good work in a system that doesn't want us mm -hmm. to be there. Mm -hmm. But like, I like to think that, that I can humanize folks. I'll buy you a muffin, I'll buy you a, a coffee, and we can talk about how we can change things together. For a lot of folks on my campaign team, this was probably one of their first time, you know, supporting and being on the campaign team of a person of color who holds so many different identities and intersections. And, you know, alongside those identities, those isms that come along with, right? So um, right off the bat, when I was establishing my campaign team, I, I, I let them know it's like, we're going to be facing a lot of Islamophobia, racism, xenophobia, sexism, ageism. And, you know, it's going to take you by surprise. I was just really transparent. But this is my daily. This is like a daily occurrence. These microaggressions are a daily occurrence in my life. And it's now going to be more public. And with that public sphere, it's going to, there's going to be a lot more of that. And I told them, it's like, I don't want you to hold things in. When you get shocked, you communicate. We all are going to communicate. We're going to be vulnerable. And there were so many times where in those campaign meetings, I broke down crying uh, because of the, just the horrible, horrible things people were saying, not to me, but about my community. Yeah. And that's what was breaking me apart. And what was also breaking me was the fact that my, there were individuals in my community with that internalized bias who were like, this is the game. This is what we just have to deal with. This is what freedom in America means. And it's like, no, no, it's not, you know? Um, th these are all tactics of white supremacy that we're actively pushing against. So how I, you know, lasted through the campaign was really like um, being authentic and vulnerable with my campaign team, but then also with my community and the folks and staying in community still. One thing that was really challenging is because I was putting in so much time and effort into the campaign, emotional labor, physical labor, financial I had lost connection with some community, right? Because the focus, the priority was that campaign. So after the campaign, I was like, I'm going like going back now and reestablishing those connections. And now I'm realizing like, oh, if, if there was that balance, I think I would have been emotionally a lot more, like I would have felt a lot more supportive if I had that, those community folks going through me, with me in that campaign. But that campaign was so isolating. It does feel but, isolating. I, yeah, I agree with you on that for sure. Because I think um, there there were some nights where I had done everything I was supposed to do. 
I mm -hmm. returned all the emails, I filled out all the questionnaires, and then I just was in my house by myself. Yeah. And um, if I was messaging friends or something, like it got to the point where friends started saying stuff like, oh, I thought you were gonna ask me to do something for your campaign. So, mm -hmm. so like I didn't respond yeah. quickly because I didn't know what you were gonna ask me for or whatever. And I was like, I understand. Cause there was a point where I was like, you wanna come door knock with me? You wanna come and like fold this stuff with me? You wanna come and like whatever? Have you donated yet? Cause if you haven't donated, oh, are you registered? Oh, do you know someone in my ward? Will you make them vote for me? Da, 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 you know, and trying to build on the relational mm -hmm. organizing of like, Hey, do you know someone who has a restaurant in my ward who I can like, I can set up shop and get people to vote for me there. Um, so, so I understood where they were coming from. It also hurt my feelings. Um, exactly. And so I had to like hold that as well, but it is, it, it can be, it's really isolating. Like, it's like, you're just kind of doing this stuff and people distance themselves from you also with like, uh, I had people tell me, well, I didn't invite you because I thought you were busy. Yeah. You didn't even like text and just see, you know, I, I wasn't busy that night. Um, but it was nice to see your Instagram photos with me. Not <laughs> No, I'm getting a lot of what you, you talked about that now where people mm -hmm. are like, oh, I thought you're busy because you know, you're this, or then you hold these positions. Right. So people aren't reaching out and are expecting me to reach out, but I can't reach out to like, I'm slowly going to reach out to folks, but yeah. people are viewing, like, I'm not like, I'm now removed from their community, right? Like right. I'm still part of them, but I'm not like in the community, which, which is really even more isolating, right? Cause now mm -hmm. I need, I need you even more. I need to be yeah. in your presence and your thought and your dialogue. Yeah. And like, you know, put, cause that's what energizes me is my community. That's what propels me forward. Mm -hmm. You know, I will always prioritize you. I will, because you are, is what sustains me in this position. You are the life, you know, that I'm living for. So that it's, it's that's that was really hard. I think it's a holdover from how we view politicians. Yeah, mm -hmm. that they are these like over there people, like superhuman. Not they they got it all together. They're over there, and they're not just regular people yeah. that go to Aldi. You know, like I should go to Aldi. You know, so then it's it's really yeah, like, me too. That's why, like, and I think that's that's what our community did. They were like, oh, now you're you're over there. You're different and it's like mm -hmm. oh no I'm still regular I'm just yeah, I'm just I'm still here signing some paperwork that's all I did <laughs> um, I'm gonna attend some meetings a month now <laughs> right so so like what did you what did you learn through this process about yourself or or something like that you really have to stay grounded otherwise you're gonna lose yourself you really have to find your people and stay grounded and be authentic as much as you can to yourself, even if that means being vulnerable, breaking down, because you you are only human. And um, with that vulnerability, I think comes strength and comes power. Yeah, I, I learned something very similar as far as uh, like stuff about myself, like I'm going to be me, whether I'm on city council, whether mm -hmm. I am working at MSU, whether I'm in the grocery store, the context can change, but I'm not changing. And so that, that was my biggest takeaway. And I was just like, well, what's my next thing? And folks started asking, well, I'll support you, whatever your next thing is. And I'm like, I don't know what my next thing is. I just, I know I'm going to be me where, whenever I get there. Y'all are absolute gems. I'm really glad I was able to put, you know, invite y'all into conversation together to talk about all of the, the nonsense, but also the rewarding experience of participating in your campaigns, what you learned. I don't think that you know, queer and trans folks especially, but marginalized communities in general really 
like you talked about, see ourselves in in how we can leverage and push and pull and change through local politics. I think there's a lot to learn from what is possible. I think there's a lot of translating that needs to be done. I think even as constituents who are in marginalized communities, that stuff is so unclear, right? How do you go, you know, participate at a city council meeting, right? What is, what do you mean? I only have three minutes to tell you about your stupid policy item on the right. agenda. What do you mean you're going to vote behind closed doors because we're protesting in your spirit, right? All of these experiences, um, how do we demystify this process? And I think, mm-hmm. you know, one step towards that is getting ourselves in the seats to be able to bridge that gap of understanding and education. Um, and I feel like maybe there's a part two in the near future of, of how do folks participate, right, as just general constituents, because the target's always moving. That is by design, right? We're not supposed to know because then, then we know. Uh, I'm really excited to see what y'all's trajectories look like from this moment on. I very much feel confident you're not going to become opportunistic you know, Mary Kay style politicians <laughs> who are in people's inboxes all the time saying, you know, please be part of my triangular um, pyramid scheme. Why did yeah. I say that anyway? But um, <laughs> I bring in three people, you bring in three people, <laughs> and then we'll change the world Ta-da! with a thousand dollars. Yes. So any yeah. very, Can I do very a- quick final thoughts before we, we wrap mm-hmm. up this moment? Yeah, I wanted to do a plug where um, I think we we didn't really dive into imposter syndrome and how that played a role in our campaign and then even afterwards. But one thing is that the system will work against marginalized folks, mm-hmm. queer folks, Black, Indigenous, people of color. And the imposter syndrome becomes even real, like even a lot more real. And one thing I realized is that we, regardless of where we're at, what position, we all feel it. You know, we all feel it. It's kind of like that idea of like faking it till making it, but we do feel it. And the the pitch that I want to give is that so often we think that we're not, especially women of color and queer women of color, we think that we're not qualified for these positions. We're trying to mm-hmm. meet like 200% before we even put our feet like into the waters, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, our counterparts might only meet like 60% of the requirements and they put, yeah. you know, this is like, you know, these are facts from the job, you know, like the job aspects yeah. too, right? So what I want to say, it's like, if you are passionate about creating like social, like public positive change and, you know, your voice is needed, your voice is needed in every single board and commission, but don't burn yourself out. So mm-hmm. find the places that you find mm-hmm. healing, find the places that you can balance you know, I find healing from this, but I can like push against the system or make an impact in this way. Find those places and have your presence be seen in those presence, you know, in those places, join boards and commissions, run for elected office because the experience itself is, is tremendous. But to see someone like you and that representation that you bring that the ideas and the enlightenment that you bring, that's more powerful to our community. Absolutely. My final thought, Similar to what you said, little different take, find your lane, okay? Like do find what you can bring, find what gives you joy in the movement, um, in the organizing and the change making. And uh, it could be that, sim- that stuff that comes easy to you, that, that just yes. is natural. Find that lane, get up in it and work it out. <laughs>
Because yeah. maybe you don't want to have your face on 3,000 plus uh, <laughs> mailers that go to strangers' homes. Maybe you want to be the designer of that mailer for that candidate who you believe in. Um, maybe you want to feed folks at the, mm. at the activist protest demonstration, or you want to um, feed the folks who were running the campaign stuff. So find your lane and stick to it because that is where that's where you'll get the most like joy. You won't feel like um, a fish out of water or that you're a fish and we're trying to test you on how well you fly. There are some flying fish, but you know, whatever. I mean, you know what I'm trying to say? Just make sure that you, you do that kind of work because Cause that's how I ran my campaign. I was like, y'all were going to eat. Y'all were going to like laugh. We're going to like crack jokes yeah. and like be goofy because I'm not going to become someone that I'm not to do this work. That doesn't make any sense. So find your lane and, and go for it. Take the Last Bite is made possible by the volunteer labor of the Midwest Institute for Sexuality and Gender Diversity staff. Our larger work is sustained by the contributions of grassroots donors. If you would like to support the life-saving work of empowering, connecting, and educating Midwest queer and trans communities, please consider setting up a monthly or one-time donation at sgbinstitute.org backslash giving or hitting that green donate button on our website's homepage. Our inbox is open for all of your insight, feedback, questions, boycotts, memes, and other forms of written correspondence. You can contact us at lastbite at sgdinstitute.org. Particular shout out to Justin, Andy, Nick, Danielle, and Michelle for all of your support with editing, promotion, transcripts, and production. Our amazing and queer as fuck cover art was designed by Adrian McCormick. <laughs>